Good morning. It is approximately three minutes after 11 Eastern Time. My name is Angel Fall, and you are listening to Victims to Victorious on the Black Talk Radio Network. I want to thank my sound engineer and founder of the Black Talk Radio Network, Scotty Reed. Um, if this is your first time listening to Victims to Victorious, we take a look at victimhood and public health and the prevention that would save more lives. I'm Angel Fall, and this is a 60-minute broadcast weekly where we take a look at gun violence. And, of course, the elephant in the room is the epidemic. And before the closing of the show, I will address this. If you want to read more about um, reducing gun mortality morbidity in your neighborhood, uh, go to LinkedIn and contact Lisa Rose-Rodriguez. Uh, she wrote a piece that's published on LinkedIn about reducing morbidity and mortality in the African-American male population by using um, harm reduction methods and by bettering interpersonal conflict. And that is um, the motivation for the show. The title of today's show is Female Fatality, Murder, and Mayhem. And we're going to take a look at some some really, really old cases. I thought it would be interesting to see what kind of murder cases of women and children were going on in the 1800s and the early part of the century. But first I want to take a look at um, some of the reasons that psychologists believe, excuse me, some of the reasons why psychologists believe and sociologists and crime investigators believe that um, lead up to men killing their families and one of the reasons why this show is called Female Fatalities is that very often the victims are not only not only the spouse or, or, or partner, or conjugal partner, et cetera, but very often in these really horrific cases, there are child victims, and many of those victims are disproportionately children. So um, I did try to mute the this piece on A&E TV, of course, comes with a um, video. And I did try to mute the video, but if you hear something playing in the background, I'll stop and mute it again um, because, of course, A&E TV is going to play video. So I have it disengaged, but, you know, those of us who use the computer and all these things may have a mind of their own. I'm reading from the A&E article. And more recently, in August 2018, the world was stunned yet again when Chris Watts, a 33-year-old operator at an oil and gas company in Frederick, Colorado, was taken into custody on suspicion of killing his wife, Shannon, and two daughters, Bella and Celeste, those were daughters' names. Immediately, you should notice the gender of the victims. The act of killing their families called familicide is rare. Researchers have found the vast majority of people who engage in familicide are men, with a history of domestic violence towards their families. But what tips the scale from abuse to murder is the question, and which men are most likely to kill? Annie Real Crime spoke with Dr. Catherine Ramsland, a professor of forensic psychology and criminal justice at, justice at the Salt University in Pennsylvania about why men murder their families. Here's the, um, the article is written with a question in bold and the answer typed. If you want to follow me on um, the computer, com slash real crime, why all hyphenates some men kill their families. Who 
tell me about the type of person who kills his family. Is there a profile? That is the question uh, posed by Sarah Watts, the author of this article. There isn't one type of person, and this is the psychologist answering, Dr. Ramsland. There isn't one type of person who kills his family, but in general, these men are fragile and unable to cope with humiliation. They're unable to make appropriate decisions when burdened by anxiety, rage, or depression. Men tend to kill more often than women, and we've discussed that many, many times here on the show. But there have been women mass murderers who wiped out their entire families as well. Each case of a father who kills his family has a distinct set of influence, influences. But men who tend to be controlling or who, or who view themselves as in charge of a family are at greater risk for familicide if conditions arise that significantly threaten them. One of the things we've spoken about in the past is men who feel threatened by court procedures are very often pushed over the edge and go ahead and violate the restraining order, the ankle bracelet, the protective order, etc., and kill and kill their partners. Returning to the article, the ones who are most at risk are men with a rigid sense of control or who feel desperate. <laughs> Excuse me. We are going to talk about viruses if we have enough time at the end of the show. What are some of the reasons men kill their family? Sarah Watts poses a question again for the psychologist. Each situation is different, the psychologist Dr. Ramsden answering. In Christian Longo's case, he was a manipulator who had a lot of anger issues. He had these grand ideas of what kind of person he was and what his life should look like. But the reality was he was managing a Starbucks and couldn't pay his bills. Ultimately, he felt like a failure on multiple levels and wanted to erase his life and start over. It was an ego thing. Next question. Unemployment and financial strain coupled with a prior domestic violence act is a huge factor for familicide. Why is that? Men in our culture are trained to believe that they are the breadwinners. They're considered the primary caretaker in terms of making sure their children have resources and enough to eat. So when they fail at that, that's a pretty humiliating blow to their ego. Typically, men don't ha- handle humiliation well. And for someone who don't, for some who don't want their family to know they failed, the answer is to kill themselves and eliminate everyone else. Here's the question proposed by Sarah Watts, again, the author of Why Some Men Kill Their Families. What's the difference between familicide and coercive suicide? Coercive suicide means one person wants to kill himself and also take people with them. They are coercing other people to die alongside them, either to make a statement for or for another reason. A father may be suicidal over divorce or custody issues, or may he, or he may want to kill the kids as punishment to his ex. That's a different mindset than a mass murderer who kills in order to become famous or just has the desire to take people out. Of course, many times on this show we have addressed the mass murders and homicides that are facilitated in particular by um, men who fit this category because very often they've gone and killed a female person at home, the mother, grandmother, girlfriend, etc., and then they go out and kill other people. So... um, the article, I'm returning to the article, or like the Scott Peterson case, a man kills his wife 
because his wife is having a baby and he doesn't want to change his lifestyle because he's so self-centered. Question, if some of these men are suicidal, why do they feel the need to take their families with them? The psychologist answer it really depends on the mindset because suicides are not homogenous in the 1971 John List case if you don't know about List List was actually on the run for decades List was suicidal after losing his home and he claimed he was going to kill himself but then he didn't he killed his children along with his wife and mother because he thought their souls were in danger and he had to send them to heaven to save them again this is the rationale of the murderer. If you just tuned in, we're about 10 minutes into Victims to Victorious. I'm Angel Fall. We're broadcasting on the Black Talk Radio Network. The title of today's show, Victim to Victorious, is Female Fatalities, Murder, and Mayhem. Right now we're discussing the profile and some infamous cases of men who have killed themselves and their entire family and or their entire family. We just spoke about John List, who doesn't kill himself. He's, in fact, on the run for decades. He kills his children along with his wife and his own mother. Josh Powell, on the other hand, killed himself and his two children in desperation after being considered a person of interest in his wife's disappearance. I think it was the fact that investigators were closing, closing in. His father was under investigation, and he could also potentially lose his kids. He probably felt that he had no choice but to blow it all up. It was not a carefully planned situation, unlike List. I remember details of List. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't an adult, but I remember following it on John Walsh's first uh, program. And uh, List was very methodical. He used a station wagon. He buried people, and he himself disappeared for de- decades. Going back to Josh Powell. Um, it wasn't carefully planned, so it's a very it's very much about the individual and his circumstances. So those are that's a little bit mixed together of infamous cases and a psychologist's opinion of those cases and uh, the situations and the descriptions of these men who take these actions. And uh, this article is actually just from 2018. So we began begin with Kristen Longo a 27-year-old father of three who was apprehended in Mexico after the bodies of his wife and three children were found in a river near their home in Oregon. He was tried and convicted and is currently on death row. So he has um, he's received a death penalty in Oregon. And that can be the topic of another show, how do states execute people? Um, can a prisoner ask for his own type of execution? Um, executions in some of these more infamous murders that we're going to talk about. Uh, the historic murder, of course, was done by hanging, and of course the military uses uh, was using it for one time, I don't know if they still do, someone can uh, give us some information, they were using a, a firing squad. So let's look, look back, I, wanted, I thought it would be interesting to look back about um, the early part of the century or maybe even in the 1800s. So here's one case. Um, in 1929, I'm not going to read all the details, um, a man named Charlie Lawson was a well-to-do farmer and the day before Christmas he went into town, bought new clothing 
for his entire family, took a photograph, and his name was Charlie Lawson. And they have the family photograph. So on Christmas Day, he shot his daughters, Carrie, 12, and Mabel, 11, and Mabel, 7, with a 12-gauge shotgun as they were setting out for their aunt and uncle's house. Then he bludgeoned them and placed their bodies in the tobacco barn. Then, next, he approached the house and killed his wife, Fanny, who was sitting on the porch. His children inside attempted to hide, but he caught him and shot his daughter, Marie, 17, her two brothers, James, 4, Raymond, 2, his four-month-old daughter, Mary Lou, was the last to be killed, bludgeoned to death in her crib. He then dragged their bodies to the tobacco farm, crossed their arms, and placed rocks under their heads before walking into the woods of the property. Lawson's 16-year-old son, Arthur, was the only surviving member of the family, having been sent into town on an errand by Lawson earlier that day. And as Arthur, a police officer, and the others approached the house, they heard the gunshot of Charlie Lawson killing himself. The exact reason why Lawson flipped and killed his whole family was never known. Some theorized that a head injury he had sustained months earlier caused a shift in his personality. Others believed that he was having an incestuous relationship with his eldest daughter, Marie. And if you're listening to the article, she was 17. This, is, this article appears on listverse.com men who killed their families um, killing, and he was killing the family in order to cover his sins so that is a, an example, a terrible example of something that happened around 1929 and of course many of us in modern times can look back on that and say you know, what were mental health services like um, were suspicious incestuous cases even inv- investigated by the local authorities. All right, so uh, here's another one we're going to discuss in more modern times. Um, And this person did not kill themselves, but some of these things are available, and they hit some of the issues that we're talking about, the type of weapons used and PTSD, and if mental health services are available to people, how would these events occur differently? Uh, the victimizer here is George Emil Banks. And uh, dressed in military fatigues and inebriated off straight gin prescription pills, George Emil Banks used an AR-15. We've spoken about these kinds of weapons. Semi-automatic rifle to kill eight people in his home on Schoolhouse Lane in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania on September 25, 1982. Five of the victims were children, four of whom were his, and the three others were his girlfriends and mothers to his children. And we've spoken previously about there isn't any statistical uh, significant difference between these perpetrators when they choose to kill children in the home. The common, denom- common denominator is that they are the father figure of the home and the children are usually domiciled in the home, be they biological or step stepchildren. Five of the victims, five of the victims were children, four of whom were his, and the three others were his girlfriends and mothers to his children. I want to repeat that. He then went outside where he shot 
at two neighbors, killing one, before driving away to the Heather Highlands Mobile Home Park, where his former girlfriend, Sharon Mazzilio, and their son, Kiss Mayu, live. Upon forcing entry into the home, he shot Mazzilio, went into the bedroom, and shot and killed their sleeping son, and then shot Mazzilio again as she was trying to call the police, ultimately killing her before also shooting and killing her sister and seven-year-old nephew who were also there, bringing his final death toll to 13. Unknown to Banks, Mazzillo's brother was hiding in the closet of the mobile home, and he called the police. And if you are listening to this on the podcast and you feel that I've mispronounced names or places, please um, send a comment about that. I'm happy to correct that. After getting Mazzillo's brother's report, police connected the attack at the mobile home with that on Schoolhouse Lane and began a manhunt for Banks while police were investigating the scenes. Banks was on the run, abandoning his car, stealing another, then ditching that one in a field. He then visited his mother. He confessed what he'd done. She called his home on Schoolhouse Lane where the police answered. They talked to Banks on the phone, trying to keep him on the line until they could get someone to his mom's house to arrest him. But he hung up grabbed more ammunition, and then drove to the vacated home of a friend. There, a standoff between banks and police began. It took eight hours and various tactics by the police, including bringing his mother and a former co-worker to the scene to try to talk him out and playing a false news report over the radio claiming that the children were still alive and needed blood before Banks came out. This is really a movie. It's, it's unimaginable. He was charged and held without bail until sentencing where he was found guilty of 12 counts of first-degree murder. Now, notice what kind of weapon he used also. If you just tuned in, I'm talking about how this man was able to kill 13 people, George Emil Banks, um, in a domestic dispute, his weapon of choice was an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle. At the first crime scene, he killed eight people alone. Returning to the article, which appears on listverse.com slash 2019, men who killed their family. He was charged and held without bail until sentencing where he was found guilty of 12 accounts of first-degree murder one count of third-degree murder, attempted murder, and aggravated assault, as well as robbery, theft, because he stole cars, and endangering the life of another person. The death penalty was recommended by the jury. I know the listeners are going, are you kidding? But, and this is in Pennsylvania, but he was ultimately found mentally incompetent for execution and has been being held in great Greater Ford Prison. He's been there ever since. So that article appears on Listverse, 10 Men Who Killed Their Families. And the title of today's show is Female Fatalities, Murder, and Mayhem. Now now I'm going to take a look at the Centers for Disease Control Research on this topic. And I know if you're listening, downloading and listening in your car while you're doing the laundry, whatever it is, you are wondering, um, you may not even know that the Centers for Disease Control has a whole entire gambit of research topics that impact the public health. 
But of course, right now they are focused on uh, the coronavirus. And um, I will spend a few minutes talking about that. The title of today's show on Victim to Victorious is Female Fatalities, Murder, and Mayhem. So let's take a look at what the Centers for Disease Control says about the number of victims, how, who are the victims, and the public health recommendations. So remember when I read research that's online, the research will, can tend to be two to three years old in terms of when they actually gather the data, even if they're publishing something today or a few months ago. In July 2017, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released an analysis of data on female homicide in the U.S. Below are the study's key findings and related prevention and intervention strategies adopted. Very key word here, stepping away from the article, prevention and intervention strategies. That's what public health is about. It's not just about immunizations. We heard Dr. Fauci talk about they're working on immunization for the coronavirus, there are safety measures that can be put in, in, ish, in place, policy measures that can be put in place. Whether the epidemic has a viremic component, meaning a pathogen is infecting people, or it's a social ill. The Centers for Disease Control analyzed homicide data spanning from 2003 and 2014 from the National Violent Death Reporting System on 10,018 women aged 18 years and older in 18 states. So the, um, the article's actual title is Female Homicide in the United States. And this, it comes from the Educational Fund to Stop Gun Violence. So here's some of the data. Over half of female homicides in the U.S. are intimate partner violence related. Not Hispanic, black, and American Indian, Alaska Native American women were killed at a substantially higher rate than women of other races and ethnicities. Now here the federal government is collecting race and ethnic data correctly. You can have the race of black and be Hispanic. You can have the race of Indian and be Hispanic. You can have the race of white and be Hispanic. And I, I use the word Latino. But what I'm getting at is you can have both a race and ethnicity. Nationality, I get comments about that. Nationality is what your passport says. Nationality is not race, and nationality is not ethnicity. It does get blurred sometimes. So firearms are used in more than half of female homicides. Just want you to think about that. I'm repeating that. Firearms are used in more than half of female homicides. And, of course, preventing firearm deaths is the primary focus of victims to um, V2V. Non-Hispanic, Black, and American Indian Native women are at a disproportionately high risk of homicide as compared to women of other races and ethnicities. Non-Hispanic, Black, and American Indian Alaska Native women are killed at at least three times the rate of non-Hispanic white women. Rates of female homicide by race and ethnicity, number of homicides for every 100,000 females in each racial ethnic category. $100,000 is, is the denominator. You don't have to know college or graduate school statistics. You just have to remember fractions from high school. The bottom, the denom- denominator is 100,000. 
So the rate that they have for non-Hispanic blacks is 4.4, American Indian slash Alaskan Native 4.3, Hispanic 1.8, non-Hispanic white 1.5, and Asian Pacific Islander 1.2. Over half of all female homicides, 55.3%, are intimate partner violence related. In IPV-related cases, 90% of victims were killed by their current or former intimate partner. And this segues back to shows we had about the court systems that don't allow you to file for um, a past partner or maybe certain type of restraining orders are only for the current and not the past. And maybe some jurisdictions are still saying, well, that was not your legal husband. All of these are factors that need that play into the death. And if you live in these jurisdictions and know someone who couldn't get the restraining order, couldn't get the court order, et cetera, because of the way the, the former mate is categorized, advocate for yourself, advocate for your loved one in your city's judicial system with advocacy, calling your local representative, et cetera. Approximately one in 10 intimate partner violent deaths these victims experienced some form of violence in the months preceding their death. So public health tenant, past commission of violence is a predictor of future commission of violence. If someone has beaten your ass before, it can very easily escalate to a stabbing or a shooting. This presents possible opportunities for intervention, including bystander intervention via training programs such as Green Dot. Arguments and jealousy were common factors for suiting IPC-related homicides. Teaching safe and healthy relationship skills, including communication and emotional relationship conflict management, is an evidence-based prevention approach for IPV. Evidence-based approach. Evidence-based prevention approach for IPV, International Partner Violence. That is the public health jargon. When they say evidence-based, they can prove that this prevention reduces the morbidity or the mortality. They use the word conflict management. And, and as always, I mentioned a really good article on LinkedIn. Um, it's also on my um, Twitter page. If you look far down enough, you'll see that I have featured a link to the LinkedIn publication of Lisa Rose Rodriguez about reducing uh, morbidity and mortality through interpersonal conflict management. And, of course, cure violence programs in Chicago, New York, Baltimore, et cetera, they have done exactly that for mostly male-on-male homicides. But the conflict resolution means when you are arguing with someone, when you have a disagreement with someone, if you want to solve the argument you do not have to resort to killing the person. For some listeners, that seems obvious, but for other people, they are so angry that that is, in fact, what they are processing. And that, that is called homicidal ideation. I'm going to read the last one under this category before we go to the station ID. Additional evidence-based, remember how I described it, IP intervention strategies include first responders, IPV, lethality risk assessment. That means they're determining how serious the perpetrator can be, how much at risk the victim is for actually being killed. Safety planning, that means escape. Crisis intervention and connection to services such as counseling, housing, 
medical and legal advocacy, and access to other community resources. So that's it for that piece on this side of the break. I'm going to throw it back to Scotty so he can give us a station ID. Thank you for supporting the Black Talk Radio Network. I'm Angel Falk. We'll be back in about six Radio since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Uh, thank you, Scotty. And of course, the Black Talk Radio Project has a button on their website where you can donate, and you can also donate from the Black Talk Radio Network website, you click on the button, and uh, most forms of payment are available. And please um, subscribe annually. This is a nonprofit operation. We're returning to the show Female Fatalities, Murder and Mayhem on Victims to Victorious. Follow me on Twitter, On Air Angel. And this article that we're looking at is um, can be found at the Educational Fund to Stop gun violence website it also can be linked to through the cdc e like edgar f like uh family s like sam g like go v like victor dot org educational fund to stop gun violence and that is our impetus for all shows how to stop gun violence how to use public health models and how if you are a grassroots worker or a victim or a loved one of a victim how you can use public health models in your community to reduce the mortality rate, which is the actual rate of people dying, and the morbidity rate, the rates of people who are permanently infected, including emotional, emotionally, PTSD, and physically, uh, gunshot wounds, pierced organs, cause, um, cause paralysis, use of limbs, use of an eye, even use of a voice, uh, hearing can be damaged, etc. So now we're going to take a look a little bit more. We're going to compare um, perpetrator and victim. If you are following us on the web, go to efsgv.org, the Educational Fund to Stop Gun Violence. So suspected perpetrators of female homicides are overwhelmingly male. 98.2% of intimate partner violence-related female homicides were perpetrated by male suspects. I'm letting that sink in. 88.5% of non-IPF-related homicides were perpetrated by male suspects. So those of you who have been following me since last year have introduced you to statistical insignificance or statistical significance. So if 98.2% of all the female homicides are perpetrated by men, then that's, for statistical purposes, that's almost 100%. So it means that the prevention and the intervention, the disruption of the violence has to be focused on males as perpetrators 
and women as victims. I'm going to say that again. The interruption of the violence has to focus on both males as perpetrators and females as victims since that is how the woman is going to die at the hands of her former partner, her current partner, her ex-husband or spouse, her male lover, if you will, she's going. if she's going to be killed, it is going to happen 98.2% of the time that she is killed by one of those people. We began the show with looking at some horrendous, infamous crimes of men who killed their spouses and their children. And the victims notice that their female children represent the statistic also. Female homicide victims are disproportionately young. 30% of female homicide victims were 18 to 29. 40% of non-Hispanic black, Hispanic, and American Indian Alaska Native female homicide victims were 18 to 29 years. If you're not familiar with the term Alaskan, Alaska Native, the pejorative is Eskimo. Pregnancy and postpartum may or may not be at high-risk periods. More research is needed. And this is what I appreciate about people who do research. I actually have been one. But when, but when there's a question about the connection of the data, when there's a connection about the um, credibility, when there's a question about the pattern, you, when you write an article or present your results, you can say that more research is needed. So here they're doing that. Pregnancy and postpartum may or may not be high-risk period, more research is needed. Here's the data that they gathered in the article that was published. 15% of women of reproductive age, 18 to 44 years, were pregnant or six weeks postpartum. This may or not be higher than the general population. Something to think about. These 15% of the women could clearly have children biologically. And of these victims, uh, some were six weeks postpartum, meaning their baby was six weeks old. Community and system-level interventions address risk factors for international partner violence, I'm sorry, intimate partner violence and gun violence. Community factors such as high neighborhood disorder, that would be a lot of urban areas. And, and let's just say everyone, especially those of you listening on the East Coast, everyone is not poor in urban areas. When you live in the Midwest suburbs, for instance, or upstate New York, you may, have, you may be thinking about, you know, urban areas are full of poor people. Urban areas have rich people in them also. But the certain areas of these cities, have a group of people who have economic disadvantage, higher high school dropout rates, poorer health care, destructive families, etc. Let me go back. Community factors such as high neighborhood disorder, disadvantage, and poverty and low social cohesion are associated with increased risk of IPV. I explain that in more layman terms. Terms. Additionally, barriers in language, geography, and cultural familiarity cause health inequities and that may contribute to the homicide. The, the uh, public health officials define health inequities 
as the difference between healthcare access and outcome or burden of disease. More black and Latino people have high blood pressure, for instance. So that's one way to look at healthcare inequities is that the black and brown people have more of the diseases um, and more of the morbidity and mortality than white people. These risk factors indicate areas of opportunity for community-level interventions, and I'm always advocating for that. If you are listening to the show and your, your daughter, uh, your ex-wife, your current spouse have described being in these situations, you can advocate for them and insist through policies in your town, through social networks in your town, that action be taken. It's not just enough to say something should be done. What exactly should be done? And I've used the words here. Interventions can be put in place. Lethality interventions, for instance, some of the first responders are being trained to determine the risk level when they come to the house. If you've ever had a domestic call yourself or know someone, sometimes when the police get there, the perpetrator seems so calm and the woman is so erratic that they decide to leave because they think she's crazy. Many factors of IPV are also risk factors for gun violence. Remember, that's our number one theme. Correspondingly, opportunities for prevention align as well. Effective strategies for gun violence prevention in impacted communities are detailed in the joint research by the Urban Institute, the Joint Center of Political and Economic Studies, and the Joyce Foundation. The title of that article is Engaging Communities in Reducing Gun Violence, a Roadmap for Safer Communities. The the Educational Fund to Stop Gun Violence applies these strategies through education to action workshops and others. So how can you how can you have one of these workshops in your area? Call 202-408-0061, extension 1020. I'll give that number again, 202-408-0061, extension 1020. You can email vchaplin, V-C-H-P-L-I-N at C. C for Charlie, S for Sam, G for Go, V for Victor, csgv.org, and let her know, A, that you heard Angel Fall and Victims to Victorious, and B, that you really want to get these workshops done so that you can implement the prevention and see the results for, for the females in your community who, are, who, who 98.2% of the time have been murdered by a former or current partner, hence the name interpersonal violence, intimate partner violence. Now, for information on advocacy and engagement in your community, you can also uh, make a phone call to the Director of African American and Community Outreach in Washington, D.C., who is part of the EVSGV organization, 202-408-0061. Her extension is 1019. You can also email Kayla Hicks for learning about advocacy. K like Kilo Hicks, H-I-C-K-S, at org. If none of this comes through, send me a direct message on Twitter 
on-air angel. A direct message on Twitter, on-air angel. And I will be able to uh, be able to respond to you. So um, most female homicides, of course, are killed by husbands. They're killed by husbands or partners. And this is something that we can prevent. I'm not advocating that you don't get married or or don't get into a dating relationship. I'm simply saying that if you are in one of these relationships that turns violent, okay, that turns violent, then what you need to do is figure out how to get out of it alive, how to get out of it alive. So there are racial and ethnic differences in homicides of adult women. We alluded to that several times, and I want to talk about a little bit about how that occurs. I mentioned something called health care inequities. Whenever you see a group of people who are disadvantaged through racism, a disadvantage from overcrowding, poor housing, lack of education, poverty issues, etc., you are more than likely to see an overburden. You're going to see that they are overburdened with a disease, meaning it happens more often in their community in the white mainstream com- community. So um, there is actually something that centers disease control and prevention puts out called the MMWR. And it is um, Morbidity, Mortality Weekly Report, I believe. Um, I might have gotten those two words backwards. So um, what are the implications of public health practice? And that's the theme of our show, public health interventions, public health solutions. Remember, public health solutions means you disrupt the epidemic of violence. And in a few minutes, we'll talk about disrupting the um your risk for coronavirus. Racial ethnic differences in female homicides underscore the importance of targeting intervention efforts to populations at risk and the conditions that risk the risk that increase the risk for violence. ITF lethality risk assessments might be used tools for first responders. And we saw the other article references to identify women at risk for future violence and connecting them with life saving safety planning and service. Remember, if a woman reports being beaten up, stabbed, shot at, etc., raped by that spouse, her, her, she's at higher risk for being killed by that spouse or former partner or, like they say here, interpersonal partner violence. So approximately one-third of female homicide victims were aged 18 to 29 a larger proportion of non-Hispanic black and Hispanic victims were in this youngest age group than were non-Hispanic whites. A large proportion of victims were never married or single at the time of death. This portion was highest among non-Hispanic black victims, and one-third of victims had attended some college or more. History of college attendance was highest among non-Hispanic whites and Asian Pacific victims. Approximately 15% of women of reproductive age, we heard that earlier, were pregnant or six weeks postpartum. Firearms firearms were used in 53.9% of the female homicides. And again, the first article references this data. Homicide is the most severe health outcome of violence against women. I'm going to say that again. Homicide is the most severe health outcome of violence against women. 
strategies to prevent IPF-related homicides range from protecting women from immediate harm, intervening in current IPV to develop and implementing programs and policies to prevent IPV from occurring, IPV lethality risk assessments, and these assessments might be used to facilitate immediate safety planning and to connect women to other services. Immediate safety planning means you get that woman out of there. So there are several um, there are several sociological reasons for for what we've discussed. The international I'm sorry I keep saying international the interpersonal violence that occurs between women of color. So there are racial and ethnic differences. The article does not pretend to understand all of them, but it makes it makes some recommendation. And sometimes with the Latino population and the Asian population, language is a barrier to accessing services. I know that. Um, and the article says this, I'll quote, an underlying health inequity caused by barriers in language, geography, and cultural familiarity might contribute to homicides, particularly among racial and ethnic minority women. And the first article referenced that almost verbatim. We have a little more than, um, uh, we have approximately 15 minutes to go, actually. And the title of today's show is Female Fatalities, Murder, Murder and Mayhem. So if you just tuned in, you are listening to Victims to Victorious. Each and every week we take a look at public health solutions to gun violence. I just want to give a little bit more. I said it before, but I just want to reiterate. Homicide is one of the leading causes of death for women aged less than 44 years. In 2015, the homicide caused the death of 3,519 girls and women in the United States. Rates of female homicide do vary by um, race and ethnicity, and nearly half of victims are killed by a current or former male intimate partner. To inform homicide and intimate partner violence, prevention efforts, the CDC analyzes this, and you can update yourself. I'd like my leaders, readers, I'm sorry, listeners to be informed. National Violent Death Reporting System, NVDRS. So you can update yourself on the numbers. And, of course, if you're listening to me, I, I think you want to see the numbers go down. You want to see the numbers go down. So in the few minutes that we have, I want to take a look at some of the um, some of the things about the coronavirus. You might say it doesn't connect with um, the show. It does on a couple levels. This is a show about public health interventions, and um, it's important to understand how, of course, how you can prevent yourself from getting these disease. And I also t- I also like to look um, at some of the background of things. So I want to take a look right now of really a background that's not getting a lot of attention in the media. And you can follow me on the Internet, the NewYorkPost.com put this article out. And what we're looking at is I want to inform the listeners a little bit about animal hosts and the numbers. And this is obviously the most public, the most famous public health issue going on at this time. We spent about 
50 minutes discussing gun violence. And right now we don't see an overlap between gun, but we don't see an overlap between gun violence and um, the coronavirus. But sometimes uh, when resources get, sor- get short, people result to interpersonal violence and create armed conflicts. So experts have confirmed, and I'm reading from New York Post, the deadly coronavirus began at a wholesale animal market in the central Chinese city of Wuhan. Now, what I want the listeners to listen for here is coronavirus has an animal host. Scientists with the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention said tests show that the pneumonia-like virus initially jumped from animals to humans at the Hunan Seafood Wholesale Market, citing China's state-owned Jinhao News Agency. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. When I used to come on public radio in Connecticut, they would give us the phonetic uh, phonetic response, uh, phonetic pronunciations of things, and so do all the anchors who come on the big the big network shows. The now shuttered market, which sold live animals, including wolf pups, foxes, rats, and peacocks, had previously been reported as the epicenter of the virus. 31 of the 33 positive samples were collected from the western zone of the market, where booths of wildlife trading concentrated, the CDC said, according to the news outlet. The result suggests that the novel coronavirus outbreak, and that means that a couple of things here, the coronavirus is endemic to China, meaning that they live with certain lower rates of it. The novel out- coronavirus outbreak is, a, is highly relevant to the trading of wild animals. The virus has killed 80 people so far and infected more than 2,700. Meanwhile, Chinese authorities temporarily barred the training of wild animals Sunday and promised to severely investigate and publish those who violate the ban. So they listed a few animals here that were being traded, but I want to go and look at some of the species. Um, And so what you're looking at is, if you're following me online, you need to know some of the the vocabulary. Animal host of the coronavirus. That will get you a list of some of the animals who are known to have the disease. Now this article appeared in the US, USA Today on February 7th and it lists some of the animals. And I want the listeners to know, you know, are, are any of these animals or their related species indigenous to the United States? So one of the um, animals known to host it is called a pangolin. So what is a pangolin? I did not know, but when I saw the picture, and if you go to usatoday.com, you can see that it looks like a, um, an aardvark or an anteater. A Chinese university says scientists identified the heavily trafficked pangolin as a possible intermediary host of the new coronavirus. The coronavirus in China is believed to have originated in bats and transferred to humans through some un- some other animal, health officials say. The pangolin may be the key link. Researchers say at the South China Agricultural University. 
the latest discovery will be of great significance for the prevention and control of the original of the origin of the new coronavirus. Notice both of these articles say the new again this is relating to endemic disease, a disease that has existed on a much lower rate and on a less lethal level. All of a sudden it spikes in terms of burden and prevalence and virility, meaning the types of symptoms that are lethal and make you sick. The research team tested more than 1,000 samples from wild animals and found a 99% match between the genome sequences of viruses found in pangolins and those in human patients. So this article appeared in the USA Today. So when I mentioned mayhem, right now many of us are on lockdown, and um, it relates to the original thing we were discussing how females are more likely to be um, to be likely murdered in a family domestic situation, and we were discussing the um, psychopathology of some of the men who commit this crime. But on but connecting the word mayhem to um, our show today, and of course our show is a public um, health show, we want to take a look again at some of the preventions that are out there for the general public that can easily be that can easily be implemented. And that's also been a theme of my shows over and over again that so much of public health common sense rules can be applied to a person who wants to say, hey, how can I stop this from happening? What are some of the things that, that can be done? So I'm going to um, read a couple of them in the time that we have left. Um, if you just tuned in, we have less than five minutes of our show, and you're listening to Victims to Victorious. Today's episode is Female Fatalities, Murder, and Mayhem, and because the biggest public health issue right now is the spread of the coronavirus, I'm spending a few minutes on that. So if you go to the cdc.gov, Angel, you can see... Yes. I do have a question. Um that's related yeah. to the coronavirus. So I was just reading that thousands of people um, are hitting the Florida beaches. Um, I, I guess it's spring break. I, I'm not sure. Uh, but the report says that thousands of beachgoers have flooded Florida's beaches. Now, what do you think about that in the midst of this coronavirus epidemic? Well, I think it's analogous to what Governor Cuomo was worried about and the governors of Connecticut and New Jersey is all of a sudden they looked around and they saw people were off at work, but they were crowding bars and restaurants. So when the beach gets crowded, social distancing also applies. That's my first reaction. My, my second reaction is we, do, we don't know so many things about the virus and so that for some people being at the beach may seem safer than being at the restaurant or being at the mall. But we, we, really, we really don't know that. And then what would be the role of water and lack of hygiene at the beach? So I, I disapprove of it. I think people should realize that if you are congregating at the beach and lying down right next to a stranger, you are, in fact, putting yourself at risk for infection because you don't know you don't know what the other person has. That's that's what. I, and then all the people who get to Florida, um, how many of them have been on the airplane? 
How many of them have been on the train or the bus? Air travel has not technically been shut down. The airports are just kind of vacant. How many people you, were you in contact with at the airport? How many people did you, uh, were you in contact with, including the TSA agents? Those are questions that I would have, Scotty. So, no, I don't approve of it, and I don't think it's safe. Does that answer your question? Oh, uh, yes. All right, so we're going to go back to a couple of things about preventing it. So the main thing is stay home. So let's just talk. They're not staying home. I know you don't live on the beach. You know, you paid your spring break money, and these travel agencies should be ashamed of themselves. They don't want to lose money either. So you get on the plane, and you go anyway. What we might see, Scotty, is that if people in the age group who are not at risk for getting the more virulent strain, meaning getting sicker, if we're seeing that more of them are congregating, we're actually going to see more of them get sicker. So they're not outside of the containment model. So if you are listening and you're wondering about some of the containment connected to uh, Scotty's question, stay home if you're sick. Stay home if you're sick. What else does that do? If people in your home get sick and one of you tests positive, it allows for contact tracing, which has not been successful at that point. At this point, what does that mean? If someone in your home has been staying home from work for the last week, et cetera, becomes sick, now the public health officials know who got sick, when and where, and who they were exposed to. Contact tracing will allow them to channel resources to test people. Right now, even though there is drive-through testing in some places, it's not available everywhere. So stay home if you're sick. Cover, cough, and sneeze. Wear a face mask if you are sick. And there's some discrepancy over which type. Yesterday I had to go out. I couldn't find my paper face mask. I actually put, um, I put a scarf over my mouth. Okay, so get a face mask. Mask. Make one if you can't go out. A limit where you have to go. You do not have to go and buy a new pair of jeans right now if you're at home. Stay home. Clean and disinfect. Clean and disinfect frequently touched surfaces. So there is some, there's some um, confusion within the health department, public health departments, as how long does the virus live on a surface. But they are convinced the virus does live on hard surfaces. So even if you're at home, disinfect doorknobs, light switches, countertops, handles, desks, phones, keyboards, toilets, faucets, and sinks. I'm taking... Uh, the Lysol disinfectant and spraying on the doorknob when I come in and out of the bathroom. All right, so, so those are some of the suggestions. And, of course, normal hand washing. If you're at home, you don't have to use the hand sanitizer. You can use real soap and water. So those are my suggestions for protecting yourself from the coronavirus, staying out of the mayhem of this pandemic with self-regulation, and, of course, public health models can be provided by the Public Health Department the Centers for Disease Control, but ultimately you need to intimate them themselves, including reducing your risk to gun violence. So that's all for today's show. I want to thank my sound engineer, Scotty Reed. Follow me on Twitter, on Air Angel. Visit the blacktalkradionetwork.com website. Click a button to donate to the Black Talk Radio Project, and I'll see you next week. 